Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is episode 103 of the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. In this episode, I sit down with Rye the Adventure Guide to discuss Leave No Trace. We also sit down with Chris Gilmore to discuss Spring Ephemerals. So, stay tuned. Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. I wanted to announce a very big event happening in the summer of 2022. I want to give you this information now in the wintertime so that you have time to prepare for this because this is a big deal. The 2022 Global Bushcraft Symposium has been announced. It is going to be happening from July 27th to the 31st of July in the year 2022. It is being co-chaired by Lisa Fenton and Paul Kirtley, names that you should be well aware of, folks, especially if you're all into the bushcraft world. Speakers are including Dr. Teresa Camper, Bruce Zawalski, Gordon Dedman, ba- Patrick McGlinchey, and Rupert Brown. These are these and many others are why I'm excited. These are some of the greatest brains of today when it comes down to woodcraft, survival, indigenous ancestral skills, anything you can think of in the realm of bushcraft. It is happening at this event. And it's happening in Wales, United Kingdom in July 27th to the 31st in the year 2022. So pack your stuff up now, get it all ready, get your passport in order, get all the stuff you need in order, because this is going to be a very big event, very, very big event that I am excited to be going to with Rye the Adventure Guy. We may even record a few podcasts with some folks while we're there. Hope to see you there this coming summer from July 27th to July uh, July 31st. If you want to learn more, go to www.globalbushcraftsymposium2022.com. Again, www dot global bushcraft symposium 2022.com to know the landscape is to open up a door to feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before we know that you will love this podcast so shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hey folks, this is another Hunt Forge Grow segment of the podcast. I'm here with my good friend Chris Gilmore from HuntForgeGrow.com and all the awesome courses he runs on there. Learn Nature's Language, The Hunter's Journey, the mushroom growing course that he just launched recently. These are all amazing programs that we want to support. And that's why we're doing these segments, but also because I want Chris to help us understand our life through the seasons. This is a big part of content in bushcraft and context in bushcraft, knowing what is coming up, what is happening now, what's got, what ha- just recently passed. Once you understand the whole seasons, you can be better at bushcraft, whether it's through foraging, medicines, gathering materials and resources, all that kind of stuff. So on that subject, we're into springtime now. Things are starting to pop out of the ground. Things are starting to bloom. Maybe near you, you're seeing daffodils poking up and crocuses poking up in your grandmother's garden. All that kind of stuff is happening. These are what we refer to as spring ephemerals. These flowering bodies that pop up in the springtime and start to show their flowers and do these amazing things in the ecology. Some of them are edible. Some of them are medicinal. Some of them have utilitarian purposes. Uh, for example, you can use bloodroot to make very strong dyes, all that kind of stuff that's out there. And some of them are just pretty to see. Some of them are not edible, or at least they're not edible right now. So I think this is this is one that Chris recommended. I think it's a great segment to talk about. I'm going to let Chris take the lead on this one while I just pop in once in a while with some of my own little tips and tricks. So take great. it away, brother. 
Great. Yeah. So we're, we're going to chat about foraging for spring ephemerals. And like Caleb mentioned, um, the ephemerals are really the, the plants that come out before the tree, the, the tree canopy starts to leaf out. Um, what, think about that. In the springtime, uh, if you live in an area that has a lot of deciduous forest, you have a lot of light that's hitting the forest floor before the leaf out. So there's a whole classification of plants that have adapted their life cycle to be able to pop out and take advantage of that early spring light um, and are adapted to kind of those colder temperatures, the cooler nights. They can maybe handle a light frost depending on what they are. Um, and some of these spring ephemerals, a lot of them actually disappear completely once the canopy grows through and you won't actually see them again till next spring. You might see signs of them, but the plant itself has, has gone. And in that spring ephemeral group, there is a whole bunch of really great, tasty, delicious edibles that we can start getting into. Um, now, the usual safety caveat here is if you're going to get into foraging, uh, you need to be absolutely 100% certain of your, uh, your identification skills. You need to know how to prepare the species right. Um, you need to make sure that you're harvesting at the right time of the year. So I recommend that you never eat anything out of the wild without having a mentor with you in person that's been doing it longer than you has eaten that species and, and just take it slow. You know, I always observe, uh, um, sorry, advocate for observing a plant for a year or two over several seasons and get to know it really well before you start to eat it as a really, really good practice going forward. Um, okay, so with that said, though, let's chat about what some of those top spring ephemerals are in the springtime. And Caleb, if you're up for it, Caleb, I would love to just go back and forth on, on these and we can we can kind of just rhyme, uh, rhyme a bunch off fast. Totally. So totally. I'll start with... Um, uh, you know, a really common one here, I'm a little bit further north than Caleb's, so some of our ephemerals, we have less here, we actually still have snow on the ground right now. Wow. Um, but up here, one of our first ephemerals that comes out is a plant species called the trout lily. Um, so it's in the lily family, and basically it's called the trout lily because you get these tiny little um, elongated green leaves, but they have these like um, kind of whitish, alternate greenish, uh, they're hard to kind of describe the color. Some, sometimes purple. Sometimes purple. Yeah, basically you get spots on it that look kind of like the skin of a trout. So that's where the name trout lily comes from. And the trout lily have two edible parts. Uh, the leaf is edible and the, the we call them corms are edible. Uh, now it is important to know that trout lilies are also something called an emetic. And that's why knowing how to prepare your plants properly is really important as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, with trout lily, it's really important that we cook them and you don't eat large quantities of trout lily. Don't go and pick a whole salad worth steam them up and eat the whole thing, you're probably going to feel very, um, you're not going to be happy with your decision to have done that. So I'm usually harvesting like a small handful of trout lily leaves and I'm mixing them in with uh, other species when I'm like foraging spring salads. Uh, the corms of them are great. They're kind of hard to harvest. They're down quite deep and there's a little bit of a knack to harvesting them, but they're very, very tasty. Um, so trout lily is a great one to get to know. So there's, there's number one for me. You got one for us, Caleb? I, the, I really want to touch on that trout lily corm. I had it for the first time raw when I was like working in a sugar bush as a kid and it tasted almost like apple to me. It's such a sweet little thing that you don't expect to taste like that. Uh, of course, again, it's an emetic cook them, but every once in a while, just taste, if you have one, try it, just try one raw. Cause it is such a unique, rare flavor in the woods. Um, one of the first ones I already mentioned it blood root. Bloodroot, it's not an edible. It's it's not a, uh, a medicinal. In the past, it was used medicinally, and I don't recommend it for that. There's a lot of dangerous things within the sap and the root structure of the bloodroot. 
It is such a beautiful flower in the springtime, though. It is one of my favorites. I'm going to be getting one tattooed on me very soon. It's one of my favorite flowers in the whole wide world. And the leaves are really unique looking. They look almost like uh, a colt's foot leaf when they open up with these big, you know, lobes all over. They look almost like there's been like a, somebody came along with like a paper cutter, like those little stamp cutters that you have for making the holes for bookbinder stuff and just chopped out little chunks all over the leaves. The, the root has the name very, very obvious. If you break the root, this sap leaks out that looks like human blood. If I tapped it against my finger, you would think I cut my finger open. It is such a bright red, brilliant color. And that is where a lot of the historic medicine is that I don't recommend. Uh, it was actually used by Anishinaabek people being mixed with bear grease and many other toxic plants to make a bug repellent that we would paint ourselves with to keep the mosquitoes, black flies, deer flies and such off of us. It is not something I recommend you do. Uh, I believe it was, uh, I believe it was Champlain who actually asked them how effective it is. And they're like, it's pretty effective, but if you got a cut, you you're going to be in danger because if that stuff gets in your bloodstream, you're going to get very sick or die. So it's not stuff you want to play with too much topically on your body or internally by any means but it's been used for many, many years with mordants to become a dye that makes this from ruddy red to sometimes a scarlet color on clothing, on cloth, on fiber for making string, all that kind of stuff that makes it really, really practical in a utilitarian sense. But it's also just this really beautiful indicator of the ecology area. It's a very sensitive root system that if you're having a lot of compaction in that soil, it's going to get crushed and die before it can ever go to seed. So when you see those blood roots blooming on the sides of roads or blooming in the woods, you know that you're in a fairly stable ecology. It's a good indicator of health in the forest. Cool. Um, so next one that I'll throw in there, uh, a very popular one. I'm not going to spend much time on this because Caleb and I did a whole piece on this uh, in the last one, but of course, wild leeks are another spring ephemeral, mm -hmm. right? You see that it was these beautifully long, much like the trout lily, except without the trout like patterns on it and larger in size, just mm -hmm. a real nice clean green color, the real nice oniony smell. Uh, but wild leeks are a favorite one of mine in the springtime. And again, the wild leeks come up before the tree canopy comes up. Uh, and then one, as they start to leaf out, the wild leeks basically disappear. You're not going to see them again until next spring. Um, there's lots to know about wild leeks. You know, uh, I definitely worry a little bit about the sustainability of wild leek harvesting. They definitely can be harvested sustainably. Um, and I'm all for wild leek harvesting, but you got to know what you're doing. So listen to the other episode that we did um, where we, we dive into that. Uh, but wild leeks, both the leaves uh, and the bulbs are, are great ones in the spring. So that's probably um, another one of my big favorite ones there. Uh, and they're great for preserving is too, making them into yeah. salt, spices, vinegars, um, all kinds of stuff you can do with them. Oh, heck yeah. It's a great one. Again, we, we talked about it on, I believe, the Peter Kelly podcast episode. Uh, I think it's when we talked about the, uh, the, uh, the leeks and the fiddlehead harvesting. That's a great one. Uh, the next one I want to mention is Canada Wild Ginger. Oh, nice. They are a really unique plant. They're a strange plant. They, are, they actually have relationships with ants. And there's a whole bunch of stuff we could dive into on the ecology of the wild ginger. They are not a genuine ginger. It's not like you can grow like the ones you at home, which, hey, if you want to grow ginger to make your own ginger bugs or your own spices, by all means, you can go to the store and buy some actual ginger root and plant it like I did last year and grow your own ginger. It's actually really easy. It's not the same with wild ginger. They're a very sensitive system. They're tubers. These little tiny long tubers have a gingery taste to them that's a little sweeter. It's not as spicy. 
It has similar chemical compounds that gives you that flavor of ginger. So it's a nice little seasoning to have in addition to everyone's while. You can pick a few of the roots, dry them, grind them up and add them as a seasoning to your food or make beverages with them if you'd like. But I find them just so unique because they're a flower that you don't easily see because it faces downwards and it's under the leaves. And it has this really strange look to it. It almost looks like a almost like an alien to me. They look really, really strange in the way that their, their flower is formed. And they grow in uh, mostly in hardwood, mixed hardwood forests I find them in. They like to be near water, but not necessarily drowning. Uh, they, they aren't definitely going to be found in open wetlands. You're going to find them usually under the canopy of like hemlock and birch and maple and ash is where I usually find them down here in good, damp, but well-drained soil. And they're just a beautiful plant and they smell nice too. Just like those leeks. They have just such a nice odor to them. Yeah. We grow wild ginger in our forest garden. We oh, nice. some there uh, and it, it's, it's done very well and it's expanded quite a bit. So wild ginger is a great one. Um, let's see what else. Uh, I don't know if this would be counted as a true ephemeral, uh, but a favorite spring delicacy of mine, basically as the wild leeks start to die, this one is ready to harvest and it's the leaves of the basswood tree. Yeah. Basswood leaves, when they're like about an inch in length, oh, they're so delicious. And they're so, um, I don't know, they just like melt in your mouth. They're super mm -hmm. tasty. As the leaves get bigger, of course, they start to get kind of tanniny and they get chewy. They get fibrous. Yeah. Uh, but when you harvest the basswood leaves in the, the early spring, when they first the buds first start to pop, they're a delicious one. Uh, so I love throwing basswood leaves in uh, spring salads. Uh, and of course, from a sustainability perspective, harvesting tree leaves is a great one, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you find a big tree, you know, you can easily fill a salad bowl and then have next to no impact on the uh, the health of the forest. So, and depending on the size of them, they can have this like texture of romaine with a, or sorry, texture of iceberg lettuce with kind of like the taste of romaine. Uh, we my my cousins often call it salad bush because it's an oh, easy cool. way to make a salad up. We put it on our burgers. We add it to uh, to stir fries, all that kind of stuff. Basswood is a great one. I love that one. Great option there. Uh, the next one I want to mention, even though it's not, you know, very common where I live, I found it oddly enough where the harvest gathering event happens every year uh, over in uh, just south of Lindsay near Little Britain. Um, skunk cabbage. Eastern skunk cabbage. It's a unique one to me because the first time I ever saw it, I thought it was an alien. Like talking about the wild ginger flower, this thing, when it first starts, it's this emerging, uh, almost rubbery thing sticking out of water. And it's this, it looks like, A, you think it's an, if it's not an alien species, it's an invasive species. This cannot be native to North America. This has got to be some weird tropical thing. And the leaves come out, they're these giant leaves. The Western skunk cabbage leaves were often used for things like uh, steam pit cooking. But you can actually eat portions of the Eastern skunk cabbage and it's used in medicine in some degrees. You just got to be very careful because it has a lot of, uh, I believe it's oxalic acid and a yeah, few other compounds. Acid. You got to be very careful of that kind of stuff. You don't want to play with it too, too much. It's in that same category as like Jack in the Pulpit where you got to be really mindful how you use it. But There's a great example. You know, in in, um, in wild harvesting, we have this thing we call the five rights. Um, and on our other blog, actually, we, we don't actually mention it in the show so much, but my wife, Laura, runs a company, Wild Muskoka Botanicals, and has a wild foods business where she sells sustainably harvested foods. Mm -hmm. But if you go to wildmuskoka.com and go to the blog, wildmuskoka.com, go to the blog, uh, there is an article there called <coughs> The Five Rights of Wildcrafting. And she talks about two of those rights are uh, the harvest in the right season and mm -hmm. having the right preparation. And those two are essential for um, skunk cabbage. You could definitely make yourself sick consuming skunk cabbage if you don't harvest it at the right time and prepare it in the right way. Mm -hmm. 
but it's such a cool plant to see, especially if you just stumble upon it on the first time. It's such a, especially, it's such a, it, it grows so early, like almost right after the ice is gone, you start seeing these things just burst out of the water. And it's such a weird plant. I just love them all to death. I love them to death. They're so cool. Awesome. Cool. I'll throw one more out and then maybe we'll wrap it up. Um, we yeah. can keep going. We can just keep naming these forever. I think we've kind of gone a little bit off of the spring ephemerals train. Not all of these ones we're mentioning are true ephemerals, but um, they're all great early spring um, plants to forage on. Totally. Uh, the last one I'll mention, cattail, um, send out their little shoots. They actually start in the fall time. So you can actually harvest these in the late fall uh, or the early spring. But basically before the stalks grow, it starts with this tiny white little um, shoot or corm they're sometimes called that's growing out of the rhizome or the root. Um, and they're, they're pure white. Now, theoretically, you can eat those raw. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, the problem is if you're harvesting cattail, uh, it's probably been underwater, which means there's risks of things like getting giardia, maybe even a coli from consuming them raw. So even though you can consume them raw, I would recommend that you at very least clean them and clean water first or give them a quick steam is a great way to just make sure you kill any bacteria on them. Uh, but those little white corms coming off of the cattail rhizomes are a, a delicacy this time of year. And mm -hmm. I've never done it, but I've heard of people pickling those as well. Yeah, in uh, in Europe, they're often referred to, although I'm sure it's in some form or another uh, uh, kind of a slur, but they're referred to as Cossack asparagus because mm -hmm. they grow around the same, you see them around the same time, you see asparagus popping up and they have right. similar textures, but not necessarily the same flavor, but similar textures after you steam or cook them. Cool. Well, anyways, yeah, that was great, Caleb. Maybe we'll leave it there for now. Um, if folks are interested in getting into more wild foraging, I know Caleb has some other uh, episodes out that. Mm -hmm. um, I also just want to let you know, check out our website that my wife and I run, Wild Muskoka. And Muskoka is M-U-S-K-O-K-A. -K -K Muskoka, like the region, wildmuskoka.com. Uh, we run foraging walks, we run mushroom uh, walks, and we also have a whole bunch of wild crafted products. So if you would like to start eating some wild foods, but your confidence isn't quite up to do it yourself yet, uh, then consider checking out some of our wild forage treats over there at wildmuskoka.com. They are absolutely delicious. The shrubs they make, the vinegars they make, the salts they make, these are Man, I love them to death. I, I every time I get a bottle of anything from Chris and Laura, I get excited. My 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 cupboard is often just full of bottles to say that's just say Wild Muskoka Botanicals. It's phenomenal. If you want to learn more about foraging, check out wildmuskoka.com, but you can also check out huntforagegrow.com. Chris's website where he's teaching people on everything from hunting through our hunter's journey course all the way over to how to grow and forage your own wild mushrooms and grow your own domestic mushrooms all over the place amazing courses all over the place on huntforgegrow.com hey folks this is the canadian bushcraft podcast with your hosts caleb musgrave and rye the adventure guy we're here to talk about well what are we here to talk about rye leave no trace leave no trace we're here to talk about you know this past week was earth day and ryan and i often follow the philosophy that every day is earth day but seeing as we missed earth day with this episode we figured we'll make this earth week uh, Leave No Trace is a long-standing tradition dating back, you know, 70s when it started to really get picked up, 80s it became really popular, 90s it became almost like the word of God mm -hmm. to a lot of folks. And Leave No Trace goes back to this belief that uh, we have corrupted the ecology with how we've been camping. People were going willy-nilly out there and sawing every tree down. There was basically no pristine wilderness left intact. And that was from, you know, deforestation through logging, but also from people going camping. It's basically a microcosm of 
the world today sort of thing. Very just everything so. we've done from littering to mm-hmm. noise pollution to totally. And so, so a lot of other things. Yeah. And so a lot of campgrounds as well as a lot of provincial parks, national parks, national forests, state forests started to instill rules that would keep us from doing that kind of stuff because we can't have anything nice. Mm-hmm. We, we have to trash stuff. That's just what people seem to do. I don't want to be too misanthropic in this episode, but you've seen it. I've seen it. We've all seen it. We can't deny it. People like to leave their trash behind. People like to half cut down trees. People like to cut down live material and try to burn it. And it's, People even try to burn their garbage and you find yep. a big glob of mix <laughs> plastic. of plastic and tin cans, all their beer cans oh, and stuff. God. And some other ones I've seen worse and tomogamy was the worst at oh, smooth yeah. water. Oh. There was laundry dish detergent containers like sunlight, oh my god, gallon and just bags of garbage that some of them they actually bagged but they just left the bags behind <laughs> hiding behind a tree on the way to the thunder box so like they almost had it right yeah you almost had it right and they're the type of guys that are just coming in on their fishing boats anyway so yeah. what was the problem of packing you it can't out, pack so. out your own shit so sadly a lot of this has become common in the bushcraft community we've seen people cutting down trees, burning them down, leaving scars on the landscape because they want to get that, you know, perfect Instagram image. They want to build their own shelter and mm-hmm. sleep at it at just a provincial park. Yeah. They want to go out and try to basically do the show alone in a yeah. national forest, things like that. It's... Build tables, build everything <laughs> that you want. That's three quarters falling apart by the time you actually get to it yeah it's it's not like they're leaving things well made for the next person and it's pieces of parachute cord and bank line and tarps and god knows what else just hung up all over the place you see a tree that has 80 nails driven into it halfway quarter way they're bent around and it's just not a good thing to see as well as it's a danger depending on what they're doing so a lot of those shelters people build, A, they weren't built well in the first place, but B, they're left alone for God knows how long. Things decay, things start to break down, and then somebody tries to set up a shelter in it, and it's a deadfall. Yeah. It collapses down, and the kid goes exploring there while their parents are making lunch or something, and the kid gets a broken leg. Happens all the time. And so what we're trying to get here is, A, the leave no trace philosophy, there's there's certain tenets and policies that you are supposed to follow under leave no trace. These can be to some degree restrictive to those of us that want to practice bushcraft. And so with those, we want to talk, talk about ecologically mindful ways that we can practice bushcraft. So we're going to talk about leave no trace, break it down, explain it, then we're going to give our own advice and our own you know, tips and tricks on how to do things a little bit more you can still make your perfect little campsite. You can still have your beautiful little view to have on your Instagram or on your next YouTube video. Sure. But still following the spirit of leave no trace. The goal of leave no trace is to be basically leaving the environment in a better situation than you, than, than you found it in. Whether that's you go out and you bring everything back with you and you don't do any actual damage to the ecology or better yet, you bring trash back that you didn't take in in the first place. So that's, really the spirit of leave no trace, but there's some actual tenets behind it that Ryan's got a list of to explain. I think you said there were seven of them. Yeah. Seven principles of leave no trace. Take it away, brother. So we'll start with number one. And it's the most important thing that all we all do when going on a trip is plan ahead and prepare. 
properly for this trip. You want to make sure your I's are crossed and your T's are dotted. <laughs> you want to make sure everything is in its place because the more you think about things beforehand, before you're in the woods, the mm -hmm. less surprises you'll be faced with. If you have everything ready to go, everything's in its place, then it's a lot less likely that you'll just, oh crap, we forgot this. So why don't we just build this or we do something else yeah. to kind of maneuver around it. So. And that, that could also go towards the stuff you're taking in with you. Like mm -hmm. instead of having 25 different individually wrapped things to make chili, bring one container that has all the ingredients in yeah. for chili. Make the chili ahead of time kind of thing. And have some way of carrying out if you bring your tuna packets mm -hmm. and stuff with you. Normally when I carry everything that's going in my kitchen pack, I'll just put a big Ziploc freezer bag. Perfect. That everything's inside. So once it's out and you're ready to go, then you just put the packages back in there as needed. Mm -hmm. Or even if I pre-package each individual meal, everything that came out from that meal will go back in the bag that it's stored in. Totally. So I find that's a good way. So you always have something because people are always faced with those situations where, oh crap, I have this tin of tuna or else I made spaghetti last night and have leftover sauce. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of it too is meal prep understanding how much you're actually needing to bring with you. Some yeah. people are like, how much food do I need for seven days? I've never gone on a trip before. And they end up bringing a whole kitchen cupboard with them. Mm -hmm. But once you're paddling, once you're hiking, you do. I find the more I'm working and everything's heavier, that's when I'm not as hungry. There are certain times where I won't eat all day and I'll be working hard all day and then I'll just eat one huge meal or something like that. Totally. But just get in tune with how much you feel you need on trip. Realize, oh, last time I overpacked food. So this time maybe I only need five granola bars rather than two 30. boxes. Kind of thing. <laughs> so just that's an easy way to carry less. It'll be less for you to portage or mm -hmm. hike in. As well as you're not having to worry about, oh, I made a huge pot of macaroni and cheese, but we only ate half of it. Now I have half a pack of macaroni and cheese to worry about. So that's when you get people who just dump it on a barely lit fire <laughs> and you just have these half burnt globs. Yeah. Or else it's all burnt on the outside and it's perfectly cooked on the inside. <laughs> and, and that kind of ties back into like we've talked about ultralight backpacking. We've talked about... The, the more you know, the less you carry. Carrying really just what you need to get by out there in comfort, like reasonable comfort. We don't, yeah. we can't expect, you know, to feel like we're in the best Westerns, greatest, you know, presidential suite when we're out camping. But we can at least be comfortable without having to bring every single damn thing and every single possible accoutrement to that. Mm -hmm. The more you know, the less you carry. Ultralight backpacking, all those kinds of things kind of bleed into this philosophy of prepare ahead yeah. of this first this first tenet of the seven tenets of leave no trace mm -hmm. so that's a brilliant one that's the thing it's for experience the more you do it mm -hmm. the more you're going to realize oh i don't need to eat this much maybe i don't need to bring this much bedding mm -hmm. for my tent maybe i don't need to bring that big eight-man tent with me sort of thing because <laughs> then you're going to go to a campsite yeah. There's going to be nowhere to put that big tent. I've had that. Or there'll before. be room for the tent, but nothing else. <laughs> yeah. I've been with friends before who brought eight man tents on a canoe trip and everything. Oh, and besides from it being a hassle to carry in, mm -hmm. it's just not a lot of space to do it. So 
plan ahead, make sure you have the right gear, the right so, food, the right mindset. And you're started off pretty good at that point. Yeah, that, that saves a lot of headaches for the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Okay, what's number two? So number two is goes along with what I was just saying about tents, is travel and camp on durable surfaces or surfaces that have been allotted for, so at campsites with tent pads, even the other ones you see now, it's like a deck. Yeah, yeah. It's a wooden platform that stops people from disturbing the flora and fauna mm-hmm. on the ground. So Reminds me of the Adirondack shelters down south in the Appalachian yeah, exactly. Trail. And everything. Those two, yeah, exactly. Those two type. So, yeah, just don't be like, oh, this will be a perfect spot for a tent. Let me clear out a few of these trees to make room for it. Mm-hmm. Or you see a big patch of moss and you think, oh, that'll be nice and squishy. I don't even need a pad to sleep on top of all that sphagnum moss. And I've compacted all that soil. You've compacted all that, <clears throat> that micro- mycology that's in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's certain environments where you can get away with clearing out and you kind of have, like the jungle. Yeah. You kind of have to clear out the jungle to be able to camp where you're going to be in the jungle. Yeah. And then within two weeks, it doesn't look like anybody's ever been there mm-hmm. because it's just constant aggressive growth. That is not the same as the boreal forest or the mixed hardwoods of Canada. It's not even the same as with national and provincial parks mm-hmm. where you th- it's the typical, oh, it's just me doing it. But then the thousands of people that come after you do it too, it's just the drop in the bucket. All mm-hmm. of a sudden you're overflowing with how many people move through there. So that's part of it is making sure like even that's why I like hammocks because as long as you find a good tree and it's not a way that's really messing with the tree itself, Mm -hmm. you get some nice straps that go around and do not harm the bark or anything on it. You're making sure you're putting on the right tree and not attaching one side to a widow maker. So doing that sort of stuff keeps you up off the ground because every time I think, most people have camped in a tent if you're listening to this podcast yeah so you pick it up and all of a sudden everything's just flattened into a square Mm -hmm. underneath it so when they build the platforms for you with sand or whatever made of wood yeah that's where it's going to be that's the place where you don't have to worry about messing that up really and that that's a really important part a lot of people think it's just like defoliating Mm -hmm. but when you cause soil compaction Soil compaction alone wreaks havoc on the ecology. When you pack, like when you look at a trail that has been packed down by people after people after people, notice that there's, even when there hasn't been people on that trail for months, sometimes years, you can still Mm -hmm. see that trail because the plant life cannot grow there anymore, at least not easily for a long time. Now picture the mycorrhizae, the the mycelium of the fungus, that basically are the living organism that is the forest floor. Mm -hmm. Those tendrils of mycorrhizae are even more sensitive to compaction. And so every time we build a new tent pad or we build a new campsite, build a new campsite and build a new campsite, that person's camping there. I want to be in this spot as well. I'll just put it right beside their spot. You're damaging all of that. And that can cause long-term effects to the ground, which means there's long-term effects to the trees and plants that want to grow in that ground, which means there's long-term effects to that forest. Mm -hmm. So, this is a real actual thing. Don't roll your eyes at this kind of stuff. This is genuine, serious conversation. Yeah. So I, again, I agree with number two, this makes total sense to me. So that's why, especially in bushcraft, mm-hmm. like if you pick your little spot, you do that. Like you, we were talking about before, do it on private property or yep. something like that. Bushcraft doesn't really have a place in a provincial park. 
and even really well-traveled crown land Mm -hmm. if you find like your secret spot back in the woods that you've used a compass to get to sure yeah do your thing kind of as long as you're not truly going out Mm -hmm. of like the principles sort of thing at least make sure you're not going to be creating a highway or yeah (laughs) here in eastern canada especially on the great lakes we have this luxury when we're talking about like talking about on like on camping on compacted proper pads and solid stable ground we have shield some of my favorite campsites have been on canada shield Mm -hmm. because it is so like amazingly flat in many areas and like the perfect spot to set up a tent or set up a campfire set up your your gear and the trees there have nice long wide roots that hold the ground really well so it's a perfect spot for hammock camping Mm -hmm. whenever i go into an area and i see a lot of like rock face i'm kind of excited because these are gonna be some really nice campsites and also there's not a huge amount of foliage to have to worry about denuding yeah but also because there's not a lot of foliage there's not a lot of bugs so usually those nice rocky spots that you don't have to worry about compacting the soil too much are great for being able to be out of the black flies and mosquitoes. The one addendum to that though is mosses and lichens. Yeah. If there's a lot of moss and lichen in a spot, leave it alone. Don't try to set up camp there. Find a find barren open rock. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about here. Barren open rock. Not where there's a bunch of reindeer lichen, not where there's a bunch of sphagnum moss. Rock. Solid rock. Mm-hmm. And I have one more thing, I guess, to add to that, sure. although it's one of the later principles that we're gonna speak on is on the rocky areas just don't have a fire willy-nilly wherever even though you're on a rock and it's not likely to cause an underground burn sure and catch the roots or anything like that but it's just an eyesore yeah fire scars you see burn marks all over beautiful granite or whatever so it's just make sure you go in allotted fire pits especially when on rock surfaces and everything so because I've seen too many of them where it's just scarred. <laughs> it yeah, it's horrible. We we had one where I think I've talked about this in the past when we we're doing talking about fire and safety and everything. We had a, we found one of those pristine. It almost looked like Pride Rock coming yeah. out of this river on the coming out of Head Lake. I think it was the Black River actually. One of the yeah. at least one of the main bodies of the, of the Black River. Mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful sight. It looked like Pride Rock. There was a dead spruce tree that overhung the very top. Yeah, which was the perfect bear hang because you would walk and just toss the rope two feet in front of you and suddenly your food is hanging 30 feet over a river mm-hmm. easiest bear hang i've ever had in my life yeah there was a campfire built didn't like it because it was real tall and you couldn't really cook on it i started digging it back and removing the rocks and rearranging the fire pit which i agree with hey if you need to rearrange the fire pit the, the campfire sure just use the designated spot mm-hmm. and then we found burnt roots coming out yeah. of it bleeding back like slowly smoldering back to a pine tree mm-hmm. with all this dead pine duff on the ground. This was not a designated campsite. And if it was, that wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. And they had totally risked an entire part of basically just south of Queen Elizabeth wildlands. Okay. So while we're getting to this full depth now, yeah, let's number, do... number five, minimize fire impact. <laughs> yes. Sorry. We're just going to brush on it. <laughs> but yeah, 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 this is a big deal. A really big deal and we've talked about uh, some of you are probably going like this feels almost like a broken record i swear caleb's talked about this stuff before a few months back or about a month and a half back we answered a q a from one of our patrons on patreon where she asked about how to be less damaging while building shelters and this is where the rant came from 
fire is part of camping. I agree with that. I'm not going to disagree with that. Fire is part of the ecology. Uh, much of the boreal forest mixed hardwoods depend on fire to one degree or another to, to work. That doesn't mean we have to make a fire pit every 30 freaking meters. Yeah. I've seen campsites where you find three or four within the campsite itself. I'll be looking for the Kaibo and I'll find a bunch of fire pits before I ever find the damn Kaibo. Yeah. It's, and I agree, we, we've had this conversation before, uh, or I've had this dialogue before, where if you're going out into pristine wilderness and there are no fire pits, there are no fire pits set up, you can still mitigate fire risk and fire scarring. Finding one big rock in the ground, pulling that rock out, having a fire in that hole, and then making sure the fire is completely extinguished, 100% extinguished, and then replacing the rock means there's no evidence that someone ever had a fire there. Yeah, I'm a big fan of those kinds of moments mm -hmm. where, A, that charcoal will probably help the ecology around that rock for plants and everything else that are growing around it sure but no one else like if i did that and then ryan came back in a week he would never know there was a fire pit there mm -hmm. when you find scars on barren rock or you find scorched pine duff that's that was what i was about to say i've seen so many youtube videos and instagram photos yeah. where they've just pitched up in the set of pine trees and you see the pine duff floor yeah. and just a fire there. They put a couple rocks in a circle, but they didn't really think about what's underneath the fire. The fire also burns down, not just up. Yeah. So you got to make sure you're on a solid, durable surface for that. Yeah. Compacted soil. Sand. I was going to say mineral soil. So gravel, yeah. sand. A lot of us go fishing. And one of my favorite things is a shoreline lunch. I agree with everybody about that. And yeah, I'd rather not have to bring a gas stove to do it. But if that means you're going to be putting a bunch of fire right on the shoreline where people are going to be floating, uh, drifting by in their canoes, they're going to see a bunch of charcoal floating all over the place and ash. That's not helping the ecology. But one part that I really do enjoy is when we're on like creeks and streams going fly fishing or going for trout. Yeah. And you catch a trout and you find a gravel bed, like one of those rock gardens. That is, the water level is kind of low right now. It's all rock, all sand, all gravel. You're good. Have a safe fire there. Extinguish the fire. Disperse as much of it as you can. But you also know that, that the next rain, that's all going away. There, there's no evidence that someone was there. Those kinds of moments with fire are the best, in my opinion. If you can't have those moments, gas stove. Please stop damaging the ecology. Use, use pre- Preordained, what's the term? Not preordained. <laughs> Pre-built fire pits that were put in if you're in a provincial park or a national forest, fire pits that are already established by and enforced by park wardens or mm -hmm. conservation officers. Use those. Freaking yeah. use those. Stop making your own. Please, God, mm -hmm. help me. We uh we had a Killarney trip way back in 2007. And while we were getting the lunch ready, because we were allowed to have fires that year in the park. Uh, there was a fire pit we had and we actually had park warden show up and count the rocks to make sure that we hadn't expanded it. Mm -hmm. And at first I was kind of indignant about it. And then I went, no, actually this is what our tax dollars are supposed to go towards. Mm -hmm. This is what it's supposed to do is to make sure that everything remains pristine. This makes sense. It yeah. was kind of annoying to feel like I was a criminal for half a second when I just got there. Mm -hmm. But I, especially now in my thirties, I really appreciated the fact that they did that. Yeah. Please stop making more fires. Even then it's a learning moment. 
Yeah, totally. Think, think, okay, maybe, yeah, this... Don't just go and make some grandiose fire pit that you want to have a bonfire <laughs> in the middle of the backwoods somewhere <laughs> 50 miles from help. So, And there's something I, I, I heard from a few people over the years, and it's kind of become a philosophy of mine, of you can go as deep into the wilderness as you want, make a fire pit, and leave that fire pit, and the next time you come back, there'll be broken bottles. There'll be beer bottle can, uh, beer bottle caps, and beer cans. Yeah, and somebody eventually will bring an ATV with a chainsaw and cut a trail to it. Doesn't matter how far back you go. Yeah, someone within the next year is going to find that fire pit and be like, "Oh, this is my new party spot," mm-hmm. and trash the place. Yeah. So if you're going to do that, do it in pre-built, pre-arranged spots that are meant for it. Please just don't go willy-nilly into the wilderness and just hack everything half to death and burn it. I kind of go, I wanted to add something when you're saying on a rock bed or anything like that. Beaches are always a horrible spot where you get people who come to party and they want to be on the beach campsite. They just want to set up on the beach. Mm -hmm. They set a ring and then they'll maybe just cover it with sand when they're done. And then all of a sudden you come by a few hours later and you're walking all of a sudden you're burning your shoes because you're walking on top of a fire pit or something. Hot, hot sand. And it's just ruining the beach. And then again, broken bottles, Mm -hmm. tin cans, Mm -hmm. everything just left there dumped from a party. So just because it looks really good for your photo shoot (laughs) does not mean you need to do it. Like if you're going to do it, make sure it's back to what it was like before yeah. sort of thing. Make sure you put those rocks back. Mm-hmm. Make sure you made sure all the ashes and stuff are gone. Yep. Spread those out in the forest somewhere mm-hmm. once they're cold and drenched yes. in water and everything. Yes. But yeah, just don't be lazy about it. Yeah. We don't want all of a sudden coming up to a beach campsite and then finding five different rings along a 100 200 meter stretch of sandy beach there was a trip a friend of mine told me about i wasn't on this trip it was out on the east coast and it was a big sandy beach they were all excited they came in on their canoe Mm -hmm. and punched a hole through the bow of their canoe because there was a sharp pointed burnt piece of wood sticking out from somebody's fire when the tide was lowered yeah and they came in it was basically like Mm anti-boat mines from the (laughs) old days yeah punched a hole in a twelve hundred dollar canoe like the amount of rage I would have felt yeah. if I saw, if that happened to my boat mm-hmm. Like my friend was like, Oh yeah, it kind of sucked, kind of ruined a little bit of the trip for me. I had to fix the canoe and luckily we we're on mainland. So I could just take it over to a place and get it fixed. Mm-hmm. I would have been like looking for the son of a bitch. That did. <laughs> I would have been like, when they, when they come back, I'm going to get them. Like I would have been don't so get canoe mad. insurance. No, <laughs> no, that kind of stuff. Just, it, it stays in my head and just irks me. Please, for the love of God, turn like find properly set places for your fire pit and do them there put everything back the way you found it from the fire ash charcoal put it all back do not throw all your garbage into the fire because then that gets gets carried with the ash into the woods yeah and barely any of the time people have the hot fire hot enough number one just burning plastics is bad burning food is bad at attracting animals mm-hmm. And you often don't get it all. There's still globs of it sitting there. You need to incinerate it pretty much if you're going to, which isn't good because then you have to build a fire that's That's bigger than meant for the rings. You'd have to be like Luke Skywalker burning his dad (laughs) to get all that stuff burned up. It has to be a big fire. 
Yeah. And that's not going to happen in a regulated fire pit. Mm-hmm. Pardon me. But yeah, it's. I'm, I'm sad that we jumped ahead too to get to the fire one. It kind of goes well but with, it goes with the it. camp on durable surfaces. So yeah. sleep yourself on a durable surface and cook and sit around the fire on durable surfaces mm-hmm. and properly build both yeah are properly built for what their purpose are so 100 so now we've done number five what's number three so number three (laughs) is dispose of waste properly well yeah that's a no-brainer until you see all the trash people leave behind pack in pack out yep that sort of thing and it goes along too with food and garbage in the fire pit yep plan ahead like i said for when plan ahead have a bag ready to go for your garbage that will be your designated garbage bag for the rest of your trip or a bunch of little tiny ones that will go into a larger one, mm-hmm. something that's really organized, set aside. So you don't have to worry about stinking up your canoe barrel, your backpack, yeah. whatever it is you keep your stuff in. You can do like a double bag and seal both so that all the food waste and stuff is completely mm-hmm. scent proofed inside your food yeah. containers that like, whether it's a dry bag or a, a bare barrel, that's a great option or one again too especially in bare barrels because after a canoe trip it's horrible when you get the juices that are at the bottom of a canoe barrel that i've seen it's this so like often. anaerobic sludge yeah it's a mix of salsa and yeah. mac and cheese powder a little bit of coffee grind <laughs> yeah 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 a little bit of creamer that's spilled mm-hmm. yeah let's not add to that it's already gross enough <laughs> there's yeah that's it's a big one. That even can go towards, like, we've talked about hygiene before. We did a hygiene one this mm-hmm. past summer. Human waste disposal. Yeah. If there's no set Kaibo or Thunderbox, you need to learn how to dig a cat hole properly and get everything in that damn cat hole. The amount of times I've come across human waste, I, it's not the waste so much that bothers me because nature will take care of that to one degree or another unless that person's got something wrong with them. It's the toilet paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I... I've walked into a forest before where there was a hunt camp for a few days. And when I walked in, I was scouting for moose. It looked like a little miniature version of a tent city of just these little tents of white toilet paper all over the forest floor. And I was like dry heaving at the thought of like how many animals are eating out of that? How many animals am I going to be eating that ate out of that? Mm -hmm. Nature's forbidden porridge all over again. I was going to say that was me and Tamogamy on that same sort of trip and we were hiking Ishpatina Ridge trail and a piece of birch bark was covering a spot. Right. And my one buddy was, Oh sweet fire starter for when we get back to camp, picks it up. There's a full loaf underneath that, that piece of birch bark. So yeah, that's just properly disposed, even dishwater to cat hole. Yep. The microbial life, in that soil will we'll help take care break it. it down you cover it up you're not gonna have to worry about stepping in it you're not gonna have to worry too much about attracting animals as if it's buried underground and we can go back to that pull a rock out of the ground you don't have to dig anything mm-hmm. and then when the rock goes on you know that there's no dog in your hunting group or your mm-hmm. camping group if we had sushi and misha out with us and we were doing stuff yeah. like that without a thunder box i'd be looking for the first big rock i can pull out of the ground I've even done it in overturned trees, the little cavity that's left by that. That's always a good place for life because everything that's munching on that tree will then go munch on your waist. And and what's the toilet paper made of? Wood. Mm -hmm. It's made out of trees. So it's going to easily get biodegraded in there. Mm -hmm. So that's a good one. Uh, Number three, what goes in must come out with you. 
Like pack yeah. everything out. Don't leave tin cans behind. Don't leave. That's why we we're talking about in that first one. That uh, prepping, prepping ahead. Yeah. Food packaging, big deal. Big don't, deal. Don't be one of those novice campers who brings all the food in tin cans. Yes. It's a. It's heavy. B is just horrible to pack away. You have to crush them all. You'll have to wash them out, maybe burn out the residue, and then mm -hmm. crush them and pack them down into a bag. It's just going to be a lot more space taken than what you want to have to deal with. So, 100%. 100%. Clean up after yourself. Please, God. So that's number three. What's number four? So number four is leave what you find. It's hmm. not a gift shop. Don't just start picking up everything you find, even though it's it's tempting to take all the rocks you want, all the <laughs> artifacts you may find, because that's you have your experience as an archaeologist. Yep. yep. So it's better just to leave things as they lay, because once everyone takes their own souvenir with them, it just denudes the whole place. That and a lot of those things are still ecologically important. Yeah how many of us come across like a moose skull with its antlers or if you go way up north caribou or elk or whatnot mm -hmm. everybody wants to bring one of those back with them because it's so cool to hang up in your lodge or at your house <clears throat> those antlers and those bones are actually a part of the environment for a reason those are there's certain animals certain insects certain uh rodents that have fit a niche by living off of remnant carrion including bone and antler mm -hmm. so as we keep taking those things out of the ecology, less and less of those animals are prospering. Yeah. Whether it's a small little type of, you know, tundra mouse of some sort or specific bugs that are important to help break down the rest of the carrion that happens out on the landscape. We, we often think of like vultures and ravens and crows and coyotes doing that work, but it goes all the way down to the mycology, all the way down to the microorganisms. And when we take that food from them, we're literally taking food out of their mouths. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's cool to have these things that we bring back with us. And there's always, always something else that's so cool to put up. You know what's really nice to have? Framed pictures of those things. Yeah. Really easy. And I'm talking to a photographer, so I don't mm -hmm. think I have to preach too much about that. But you can take a lot of cool photos. And as the old saying goes, take photos, leave only footprints. Yeah. It's not that hard to understand that. Yeah, I get it. I've... I've done it myself. I've collected skulls that I found out in the woods because they're just cool. But I have to often remind myself that these are food to something else. And same with sticks, same with rocks, same with everything else out there. When it comes to artifacts, dude, I'm not going to get into a tirade, I promise. <laughs> but you are denuding all of humankind's history when you put that in a box in your drawer. Leave it on the landscape. Because once you take an artifact, even if you feel bad a month later and bring it back to the general area you found it in, and like that looks like a pretty familiar patch of grass, I'll put it there. You've removed it from its actual, what's called in situ. You've removed it from the context of where it was. And that, as silly as that sounds and as like boring and kind of being a Donnie Downer or Debbie Downer or whatever the hell the phrase is, it sounds like that, sure. As an archaeologist, when you move that shit, you've changed the entire storyline of what we're trying to do research on. You've completely changed the storyline. Yeah. And so take the photos, but leave the damn things behind, please. Yeah, it's cool to have found... There, there's a road near us uh, called Indian Point... No, not Indian Point Road. Arrowhead Road. 
because there was these uh, a dozen or so farm fields that people would plow until every spring mm -hmm. and that the next rain the whole community would go and pick up all the artifacts yeah there were things from the paleo-american period from twelve thousand to eight thousand years ago there mm -hmm. and at the same time there's clay pots from the woodland period three thousand years ago to contact yeah all gone before archaeologists could actually get in there and actually see what the story there was think about that you have eight to ten thousand years of human history in one field yeah and it's gone now mm -hmm. we don't know what happened there how could we have mammoth hunter culture in the same place that we have people that were growing and developing corn? Mm -hmm. How could that pop? What is, makes this place so important? We'll never know because yeah. it's gone. Mm -hmm. Take photographs, leave footprints, please, please, please. Okay. I kept that rant under two minutes. I'm proud of myself. And even just leave wildlife. Yeah. I was in outdoor education in high school and one of the guys, I'm we, set up lunch in this beautiful island and we were hanging out and as we went to go leave and pack up in our canoes we realized a bunch of turtles were hatching from their little nest oh no and they were crawling back down to the water's edge as turtles do mm -hmm. when they're hatching and we're like oh cool that's so cool and then we left and it wasn't until we got back that one of the guys revealed that he had put one of the turtles in a Nalgene with some brush and some dirt and stuff like that. And he had taken it home with him and was keeping it in his bathtub or what? something. So this was this was one of the delinquent kids from my high school that happened to be in the outdoor education program. And he kept it secret. He hid it away. But yeah, he brought a baby turtle that was not even a day old and brought it home in an analogy container just to keep in his bathtub in his little townhouse complex in Pickering, Ontario. So yeah, Caleb is speechless right now with his hand over his mouth. His glasses are shoved up on his forehead. You can see 25 wrinkles in that forehead right now as he what? goes through a situation. Let's let's make a few things clear here. First off, that's not good for the turtle. Yeah. In any way, shape, or form. Secondly, that is. I'm I'm sorry for everybody who's watching this with their kids. I'm gonna swear right now, so just cover their ears, do the earmuff thing. That's fucking illegal. Yeah. It's a, it's an offense. It's a provincial and federal offense to take native animals and put them in captivity unless you have a permit for rescue or rehabilitation. Do not try to find it. It's not a pet smart. It is nature. It is their home. The, for, for those that are curious about like how damaging can that be? There's an animal that is native to Ontario called the box turtle. The original depopulation that happened hundreds of years ago of them because they're they, they did get depopulated before contact by Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabek and other indigenous people who really like those shells mm -hmm. for making rattles and ceremonial instruments and stuff yeah so i'm not saying this is a white person thing. i'm not trying to do that thing blame white people thing mm -hmm. it started with them but then people really like them as pets yeah because they're one of the only native tortoises to canada there's a couple others, I believe, out in Alberta and Saskatchewan, BC, but there's none others in Ontario. Yeah. They are now extirpated. We have no native population of box turtle that is on record. I've heard 
they're kind of like the cryptid of Ontario for reptiles. People talk like I saw box turtles in Algonquin Park. You may have. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any evidence of it. Yeah. Because the pet industry. Wild animals are not your goddamn pets. Yeah. Please leave them in the woods. And on that note, when you're in the woods with them, please don't try to treat them as your pets still. Do not put jam on your kid's hand along the highway corridor in Algonquin Park so that a black bear, I swear to God this happens every freaking year, can lick the jam off their hand while you get photographs. Mm -hmm. You are going to get that bear killed. Flat out. Whether the bear attacks your kid or not, that bear is now habituated to people giving them food. And that leads to the bear causing problems. Because the bear is not the problem, it's us. And if a park ranger sees you feeding a bear and that bear is eating from people's hands, their job is to kill that bear because that's the only option that's left because that bear now has been habituated to that. Yeah. So just be minimal impact. That's please. God. You don't know what kind of turtle that is. You don't know what's going to grow up to be a big snapping turtle or yep. something. You're not going to hold on to that. And all of a sudden you're throwing it in Lake Ontario. Yep far away from where it was or, born or you take it to like a, a farm pond you see and now that turtle's <clears throat> causing problems for the farmer and the farmer's going to kill the turtle yeah and even this oh this whole part also goes with the reason why they don't want you transporting firewood mm-hmm. or wood you like emerald ash bore any beetle. other beetle that can make its way to another part of the province you start in toronto you go to quebec or something like that to mm-hmm. do your little weeks long trip and then you come back with some, oh, we have firewood left over, so we're going to bring it back with us since we can have a fire at home. Boom, invasives. Yeah. Son of It's the same like... You took a turtle. Yeah, you took a turtle. I'm still on that. I'm put sorry. it in a Nalgene. Put it in a Nalgene bottle <clears throat> and then kept it in a bath. What does he do when he needs to bathe? Yeah, he was your typical stoner delinquent kind of guy. <laughs> I don't think he's made it too far in life. <laughs> that poor turtle... I have a soft spot for turtles. Um, yeah. That's... Yeah, just... No, no. Leave them in the woods, please. <clears throat> yeah. It's... You don't have the proper ways to care for the animal. You can't reconstruct its habitat mm-hmm. at your home. You're not going to set up a little terrarium for your little turtle friend and make it work. So, yeah. Save that for the professionals. Yeah people that you can actually go and buy these things from and before we get too much on the next part don't throw your pets into the woods either the reason we have red-eared sliders across ontario is because people had them as pets didn't know how to take care of them or got bored with taking care of them and threw them in the woods Mm -hmm. the reason we have goldfish throughout much of Mm -hmm. southern ontario is an invasive species because people got fed up with feeding them and tossed them out so please vice versa don't take native animals and put them in habitat that is not their habitat, and do not take domesticated animals and put them into the wild. Well, it's the same reason they tell you to scrub your boats every time you've been zebra in a body of water. Zebra yeah. mussels. Yep. So Gobies and everything else. Don't be bringing back little hitchhikers with you wherever you go. Good Lord. So you put a turtle in a melting. Yeah. Leave what you find, whether it's living wildlife, if it's plants, if it's... Skulls and bones. Anything. Yeah. Artifacts. So... Yep, just go take your photos, leave your footprints. You'll have stories to tell for the rest of your life without bringing back 
what can this turtle thing's gonna be in my head for the rest of the episode just so you're aware surprised i hadn't told you that story no before. i am dumbfounded i am dumb just picturing him with a baby turtle in a nalgene yeah good god mm-hmm. that was when we were like 15 or so <laughs> that was yeah it was dumb wow but that goes on to our next a nice segue to our next thing is respect wildlife no shit <laughs> That is their home. This is your vacation. Mm -hmm. They live there 24 7, 365, unless they're a migratory bird. But nonetheless, still respect the ones that you share the space with. Just on that note, if you see a loon up on shore, they don't like going up on shore because they're heavy boned. They got dense bones so that they can dive deep to catch fish. When you see them on shore, chances are they're on top of a nest. This is not the time to go up and paddle up on them to get photographs. Mm-hmm. Leave them alone because that that loon will abandon the nest or try to abandon the nest and get away from you. Because they're so heavy, they often drag their body. Now that they're under stress, they often crush their eggs in the process. And they only lay one nest a year. Yeah. Once they lose those eggs, they don't lay new eggs. They're not like ducks. They're not like geese. They crush those eggs. There are no babies coming from that uh, from that clutch. Mm. They're they're dead. They're gone. You just ruined an entire generation of loons. Yeah. And the same thing can be said about you know a lot of wildlife. Get a Ryan has amazing photographs of wildlife. Some beautiful photographs of wildlife from a distance. Yeah. I've seen this guy take the time to stabilize his camera and get it set up in the right place to get those kinds of shots without harassing the wildlife and this goes towards you bird watchers i know we've got you listening because we've got many episodes of birds on the podcast when you hear that there's an owl in an area leave it the hell alone do not shake the tree to wake it up so it opens its eyes so you get your perfect picture perfect shot it's one of those things don't disrespect their 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 safe space their bubble they're trying to sleep you see a little sawed owl or whatever, and how many owls a year die from being overstressed from humans? Yeah. Mobs of people. It's come happening worse these days with yep. social media and everything. Mm-hmm. Was, oh my god, where did you see that owl? That's oh, I saw what, it over near Newmarket. That's why I don't <gasps> geotag my yep. wildlife photos or anything. I don't want people being like, oh, "Where'd you find that?" I'm going now, and then they're bringing their five friends, and those mm-hmm. friends are telling everyone else, and suddenly you have a parking lot full of people to see just that to one see owl. one owl. And that is going to be stressful. Owls get mm-hmm. stressed by just a person being around their nest or being around mm-hmm. the tree they're resting in, let alone tens, if not dozens, if not hundreds of people showing up. Mm-hmm. Please, we've talked about this before when we did the uh, the bird watching yeah. episode last year. So we're kind of being a dead horse. I think we might have talked about the ethics yeah. of wildlife viewing and stuff yeah. like that. But please, please take this shit seriously. Stay from a distance, especially with other things like moose there was a story in the states a few years back where a small like a i think a juvenile moose was swimming and as it swam towards shore a group of people just stacked up and they pulled out their phones and started taking pictures and now that moose had no longer anywhere to To swim to to swim to so it turned around and eventually it drowned yeah so don't like You'll see these animals in your lifetime. Sure, it's cool to see it at that moment, but don't let your momentary 
greed or I'm not sure. I would say greed, selfishness for Vanity. sure. They Vanity. They want to show off that yeah. they've seen this animal. They're like, oh my God, I'm going to get so many likes and all that shit. So. And this this also bleeds back to what we are talking about with the bear. Like, you get too close to these animals, they can mess you up. This goes mm -hmm. both ways. You can harm that animal, but they can harm you. This is a wild animal who wants to defend itself, does not want to be preyed upon, and there's no way you can tell that animal, I'm not here to prey on you. Mm -hmm. And even if you did tell them that, they wouldn't believe you because they've had other animals pretend that they were interested and try to attack them. These are real animals with real instincts. The, the lady that got too close to that buffalo and had her jeans hanging off its horn. Yeah. This is real world stuff. An elk can gore you. A buffalo can trample you. A moose will turn you into pink mist in the snow. It's razor hoofs will go right through you. Yes. Bears will chomp on you. Squirrels will bite the shit out of you. Trust me, I've had to raise multiple squirrels in the past uh, for rehabilitation purposes. I mean, we're permitted for that. Don't get into trying to save baby squirrels because you heard Caleb did it. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work and it's not that pleasing, trust <clears> me, because <throat> they bite the shit out of you. All animals have teeth. If they don't have teeth, they got claws and they will protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And you have no way to convince them otherwise. Or even <clears> in cars or boats, if you see an animal running down the side of the road, I see this a lot on <sighs> Facebook and everything. Don't try to catch There'll it. be a moose on the median and they're just rolling along beside it. Meanwhile, you can see that the animal is getting agitated, is panicking. Mm -hmm. They're distressed. It, it could take off either way and run into another car. Yep. Just let it go about its way. Let it go first. You're in a car. You're going to get to your destination when you need to, especially if you're stopped and rolling next to it. So, yeah, just give it its space. Please. The only time to intervene is when you know there's an animal in serious trouble. If it's already injured, then call the people that are experts at that. Mm -hmm. Making sure they can, oh, here's where I saw this animal. Can you go take a look? And they might be able to give you the instructions <clears throat> to rescue the animal to bring to them. And yeah. only at that time should you try. The only time I've done something similar is here in Peterborough when I was teaching and leading canoeing. Oh, yeah. And doing the canoe course. And we know through Peterborough, there's the Trent Severn Waterway with lots of canals and lift yeah. locks and everything. And there was a groundhog. I sent all my students in front of me, not knowing that this groundhog was in the canal. But as they went through, it flushed it in, and me, uh, the tail, came so last. Cool. And then all of a sudden, it's trying to climb up the walls but the walls are five six feet high off of the water concrete. of concrete and it could not get a footing it i was trying to be like hey guy go this way and like slowly putting my paddle behind it so it would run away from my paddle try to get it outside but it was not doing it. i tried to lift it up on my paddle <laughs> to get it up and over but you could tell it was distressed and everything yeah. So I made the last second decision to pick it up. <laughs> Not recommended. Not recommended. You might get bit. I was surprised I didn't. I think he was just thankful. <laughs> I think luckily, since I know how to properly canoe, I can do the maneuvers quite well. Mm -hmm. That I came up beside it, put my hand right underneath its stomach, and then placed it in front of me in the canoe. <clears throat> paddled the 15, 20 yards out of the canal. Got to a sandy shore. I just stroked on the back a little bit. Calm him down. Calm him down, making sure he was okay, that he wasn't just like, yeah, gotcha, kind of thing. <laughs> so then I picked him up underneath the belly again, made sure he was supported, and then put him on the shore. 
and left and then him alone. He scurried away, and that was it. And that's at most what you should ever do in, yeah. in those situations. That's mm-hmm. with a small animal. That again, that's a type. Groundhogs are a type of squirrel. They can bite and they can bite hard. They do not play with wildlife. Ryan was doing something in a split second decision. I want Steve Irwin on it. <laughs> yeah, we don't recommend doing that. Uh, luckily, this one doesn't have a stinger. Yeah. But... It was stuck in a canal on man-made stuff, so exactly. I wasn't going to allow natural no. consequences to take over that, especially since my group was the one that likely scared it into that space. Totally. If you see an animal swimming across a lake, just leave it alone. Stay far away from it. It knows what it's doing. It's swimming. Mm-hmm. If you see a bear, you'll want to stay away anyway. If you <laughs> see, If you're on the west coast of North America... And you see seals or anything like that, they'll stay away from you. They'll mm-hmm. be watching, bobbing their head out of the water, watching from afar. Don't get up too close to sea lions sunbathing on the rocks. I've seen videos where it went wrong, and they're all scattering and falling and smashing off the rocks because people wanted to get up super close mm-hmm. to it in their boats. And so. may, may we remind you that a sea lion is a big animal. Yes. They can cause damage to you and themselves mm. when they try to scatter. Yeah. So. Give the animals their proper space and yeah. respect. All these go in line with keeping their home in proper care. You don't mm. want to destroy everything. Take away all the plants that they feed off of. Mm-hmm. Take away their dwellings. Take away everything from them. Or even pollute it. With stuff that they could ingest and yeah. be poisoned from. And that, that goes into consideration when we're talking, going back to like shelter building and firewood. Mm-hmm. A lot of those dead standing trees you come across, you're like, that's primo firewood. Yeah. Often they're hollow and often you find dung in them because that was someone's habitat. Yeah. Flying squirrels depend on those. Those big, massive, hollow trees that you find, that's one of the only natural nesting habitats for turkey vultures. So when you cut that all down, whether they were in there to begin with or not, you're removing options for homes for them. Yeah. So be mindful of like the material you choose, which is why I still will in the right conditions go for green wood for projects. Cause at least I know it's not a, a current habitat. Mm-hmm. I'm not taking away a vulture's nest. I'm not taking away a raccoon's den. I'm not taking those away from them when I go for green wood to make simple projects. If I'm, burning firewood i'm looking for downed timber yeah stuff that i know it's at worst i'm going to be removing ant colony homes Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ants in the world and they got a lot of places to live Mm -hmm. i'm not going after those big beautiful snags that we see out there in the woods yeah it's gonna look really cool when you knock that down with your crosscut saw your buck saw your axe Mm -hmm. and it's gonna burn real hot because it's nice dry it's someone's home should I go over and knock your house over and light it on fire? <laughs> no, that's not really very kind. Now we're in their neighborhood and we're cutting down and burning their houses. Mm-hmm. Be mindful, please. It's also the same kind of situation for 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 uh, wood duck and other tree nesting ducks. You like going waterfowl hunting. You need those trees to be able to have that waterfowl around. So I think that part of my tirade is done. Okay. <laughs> so we move on to the last? I think we move on to the last one. Be considerate of others, not only the wildlife, but you share these spaces with other people as well. Totally. So noise pollution, mm-hmm. everything like that. You don't, The worst thing I think for most people listening will agree that 
when you're been looking forward to this trip for months on end, you planned it in March, you're finally doing it in August, you get out there, you got everything ready to go, you're following the seven principles, and all of a sudden people show up next to you in your campsite <laughs> and they've got all their I've heard of people bringing generators into the backwoods yep. to throw on parties and everything. If you're going to do that, make sure you are far, far away from where anyone else camps. Yeah. Make sure it's the most private, serene place, but at the same time, noise pollution also affects, affects the wildlife. Mm -hmm. So be courteous. Do not keep people up. Do not have blazing lights just shining at other people's campsites. They're trying to get to sleep at 11 p.m. Mm -hmm. And they can just see silhouettes, people screaming, people shouting, doing everything. And this and this can go towards also that uh, that eyesore conversation we were having earlier. Yeah. <clears throat> I go into a campsite and I chop down a bunch of trees to build my lean-to. And then I leave that lean-to up with a bunch of plastic string holding it together yeah now they're walking into that campsite and there's a bunch of stumps that are half chopped up and mm -hmm. look like a beaver on cocaine has been in there yeah and this ramshackle thing that i just held together with a bunch of random plastic string this is not what people go out to camp want to see yeah they don't want to see your modern art masterpiece mm -hmm. they want to see nature yeah so eyesores ear sores smell sores my god the amount of people that bring out noisy stinking generators that just build up the the my desire to not be near people yeah it's be courteous be kind be courteous be thoughtful be empathetic think about how you would feel if you were in my situation at two in the morning while you're blaring lady gaga like speaking from your experience of that yeah, I was, when was that, 2016, I think it was, I was teaching one of our courses, and it was the last time we ever ran a course during any long weekend, mm -hmm. because I forgot that the valley that our camp is in, the marsh, the wetland that we're, uh, we're camped in, backs onto everybody else's properties on the res, mm -hmm. and somebody played Lady Gaga's Bad Romance for an hour and a half in a loop while I'm in a bark <laughs> wigwam. That is just becoming a sound channel. And all I hear, it sounds like I'm at a Lady Gaga performance <laughs> at two in the morning. I have to be up at 7.30 to be ready to teach by eight. And all like, just, just put into your head the thought of being in a perfectly built bark wigwam and rah, 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 just going. <laughs> it is the most surreal experience. And the fact that this person must have had a bad breakup or something because it was an hour and a half on a loop. Mm -hmm. from 2 a.m. till 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. I have nothing against Lady Gaga. I wanted her dead that day. Mm -hmm. For I was so mad. I was so annoyed. Please be considerate with your music. Mm -hmm. If you're going to play music, change the song up once in a while, please. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like the Baby Shark song. Let's yeah. not have that. Let's not have that. So, yeah, I think that's a great one. That last one is being courteous to other people out there. Yeah, it's all about humility yeah. and being respectful that other people are coming out here to enjoy the area as much as you are, yeah. if not more. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just <clears throat> be considerate. Totally. totally. Try to treat others as you wish to be treated sort of the thing. Golden rule. So the golden rule, folks. Don't come just 
blasting music. Don't make huge bonfires that smoke out the campsite next to you. Mm-hmm. A lot of this could be said as well for car camping yep. campgrounds. It's just by 11 p.m. you're like, I wonder if the warden's office is still open. Can I go ask to move my campsite? Because all of a sudden a graduation party showed oh, up God. next to me or something like that. Yeah, so, please. Yeah, just be considerate. All these principles are about being courteous, about the land, the wildlife that lives there, mm-hmm. as well as the other people that are exploring and traveling through there so totally yeah just be considerate especially in bushcraft like we've been talking about don't walk into algonquin chop a maple down chop a maple down set up your little lean-to shelter construct a shoddy table between two trees extend the fire pit to five feet wide kind of thing (laughs) it's just yeah. A pain in the ass yeah. in the end of the day for not only the people that are also traveling there, but the people that are in charge of keeping that place in order. Yeah. You're adding more headaches to them. You're adding more pollutant pollution that they got to deal with the litter that you're leaving behind. Yeah, it's just think you go in, you blasting base and everything all night long. The animals there are all stressed out. Mm-hmm. They're not able to go about their lives the way they usually would. There's an owl trying to hunt near you, but everything's getting spooked away Mm -hmm. sort of thing. So now they're trying to travel to another side of the lake, but then they're in a territorial dispute with another owl. Or the next person over there starts blaring music and just becomes, yeah, let's be kind, be courteous, be thoughtful, be empathetic. I think that's a pretty straightforward one to understand for sure. Mm -hmm. So in conclusion, what are our seven tenets of Leave No Trace once more? So again... Number one, plan ahead and prepare. Mm -hmm. If you got everything ready to go before you even leave, you're at a great head start in making sure you don't ruin everything. Totally. And you're already seeing problems before they happen happen sort of thing. So you've got everything, any contingency ready to go. Perfect. Number two, travel and camp on durable surfaces. Mm -hmm. So making sure you're not disturbing the landscape from what it originally was when you got there right it's one thing to set up your tent off to the side one time but then you ain't the first you ain't the last mm-hmm. so make sure it's all done accordingly they make spots for you at these campgrounds for, for a reason. reason so make use of it if you have too many people get a group site don't totally. try to pack five tents onto one site Park wardens are always coming around. They're going to find you eventually. Yep. You can try to play it off, but eventually they'll find you sort of thing. You can yep. run, but you cannot hide. <laughs> and number three, dispose of waste properly. Makes sense Food to me. residue, your gray water from dishes, your duty and your number ones. <laughs> so make sure it is out of sight, out of mind. Do not... Another one I think we forgot to mention was doing this away from bodies of water. Yeah. Yeah. So at least 60 to 100 paces away from a body of water, have your cat hole yep. put in there. You don't want it leaching into the water. Same goes for bathing. Biodegradable soaps aren't, don't just, oh, 
they're good in the water yeah they'll change the ph of the water they'll yeah. put chemicals in there that the fish you don't want going through their gills and totally. everything and then the animals that drink out of that water <clears throat> you don't want to have food scraps just strung across the top of the water or sinking down in there and soap suds all totally. over the place and oil slicks from your cooking oil and everything and if you want more tips and advice on that you can check out our camp hygiene episode from last summer mm -hmm. so check that out i think that's in the 40s of yeah. episodes 40s to 50 somewhere mm -hmm. so check that out so yeah dispose of it properly have some way to pack it out do it away from where there be issues none in the fire not mm -hmm. in the water mm -hmm. make sure it's in a nice cat hole where totally. it can be dispersed of or packed out with you sort of thing awesome that was number three number three and number four was leave what you find no matter what knickknacks you find whatever turtles you may find oh, do not bring them with you you should be leaving with what you came with mm -hmm. so number four or number five minimize fire impacts Yes. Fires in designated fire pits only. Mm -hmm. Or if you can't build a proper one, yeah. carry a bunch of sand and line the bottom with sand. You don't mm -hmm. want it burning down through the duff, through the roots. You don't want to have five fire pits scattered throughout one campsite when you're only going to use the one that they provided for you in the first place. And if you don't actually need a fire, don't have a fire. Yeah. If you can get away with doing cold meals or, you know, using a cook stove, do that. There's certain places that won't allow you to have a fire, even outside of a fire ban. Mm -hmm. Because there are islands, say Georgian Bay out near Perry Sound, when you do sea kayaking out there, mm -hmm. they don't want you denuding the whole forest that are on those little small islands. Yeah. So they say, no fires. Yep. So what? If you want a fire, plan to go somewhere else. Yep. Sort of thing. Number six, respect the wildlife. Do not bring turtles home with you. Do not disturb the animals. Do not disturb the owls. Buffaloes wearing your jeans on their horns. That's all yeah. I'm going to say. Just, you want them to respect you, respect them back sort of thing. Totally. And number seven, be considerate of others, both humans and wildlife. I think we can all get behind all these things. Yeah. These are seven very simple tenets to, to respect. And a lot of people say that bushcraft can't fit inside Leave No Trace. But there's been people who argue that Leave No Trace is too restrictive on being able to do things on the landscape from a real survival perspective of training. I disagree. I disagree. There's certain ways that we can, you know, bend those and still fit within them. We can stretch the bounds and still work within it. If I need to cut down material for, let's say a specific task I'm going to do. Let's say it's basketry. I need to get some mm. rim material for making the basket rim. I need some birch bark. A, do this on private property. Yeah. And make use of the whole tree. Cut down the whole birch tree and make use of it so you're not just leaving scarred trees on the landscape. That wood is phenomenal wood for carving, basket making, uh, for firewood in general. It's a phenomenal firewood. So choose one tree, cut it down, get all the bark off of it, make all the baskets you want. Or when you're practicing, go find a dead rotten birch mm -hmm. and peel the bark off that. And yeah, your first couple of baskets aren't going to be anything to write home about, mm -hmm. but they're good practice before you go out and take a live one. That's great advice there. And when I have to go cut some rims for those baskets, I'm going to go choose trees like red osier dogwood, mm -hmm. Beb's willow, 
things that I can trim one branch off of very, very low to the ground and it'll sucker back and create more shoots and be just fine. Yeah. Rather than going off and being like, oh, look, I found a chestnut shoot. Chestnuts are endangered species in Ontario. Let's not cut that down. Mm -hmm. So when you look at all these things that Ryan's talking about, these seven tenants of Leave No Trace, you combine, if you combine that with knowledge of your ecology and you combine that with proper ethical bushcraft, there's nothing to argue about any of these points. Mm -hmm. they, they all fit within the paradigm of being a bushcrafter. Yeah. You just have to think about it and be mindful of it. Does that mean we can't cut down trees in the woods? No, you can still get firewood if you're being mindful. You can still get shelter material if you're mindful. If you do it in the right way and understand your ecology. Following these seven tenets just gives you a good baseline. At the same time, giving very good restrictions for the general populace who go out in the woods. Mm -hmm. These are, these are uh, seven tenets that I truly, genuinely think are valuable and invaluable. They are mm -hmm. so important to remember at all times. To me, most of these are common sense. When you start listing them, like, oh, yeah, yeah, that would yeah. make sense. But then I forget, I've been doing this for 20-something years. Yeah. I grew up doing this stuff. Not everybody that goes out camping knows these things right off the well, bat. It's like the biodegradable soap. You see that first-time user. Yeah. You're like, oh, I, this it's is earth-friendly. I can use it wherever. It's just going to yeah. go back into the earth. But then you don't think about those other things, about it floating away in the water ruining the fish habitat, ruining mm -hmm. the shallow plants yeah, and stuff. the shoreline there. plants. So, so, yeah. All these kinds of things. It makes total sense when you think about it. But if you don't have a baseline of understanding of how the environment works, yeah, I can see why these feel like they're being too restrictive. I can't just drive anywhere I want with my ATV and make my own yeah. trails and make a giant bonfire with my friends. Yeah, I can mm -hmm. see why people who are in that frame of mind might have a problem with this mm -hmm. but when you think about it you have those options on private property mm -hmm. and if you really want to have a big spot where you can have a big fancy campsite find private access find someone that's okay with you having a campsite on their woodlot mm -hmm. and set up there we have the canadian bushcraft camps that we set up because we want it to be controlled in one area we don't want people building all their shelters throughout the entire woods of the hiawatha rice mm -hmm. lake area and building all these camp after camp after camp, causing more compaction, more pollution, more littering, more damage to the ecology, more scars on the landscape. That's why we have a specific camp that we take people to, such mm -hmm. as Camp Mud. That's kind of the value of it. Mm -hmm. So with all that said and done, I got nothing to argue with. There's nothing I really want to add to it too much. You well, can... This is all part of planning ahead and preparing. Yeah. Making sure you know the ins and outs of doing this kind of stuff and it'll be a lot easier to find a piece of private property where someone might allow you to use it for your bushcraft needs if you follow all these they don't want to be like sure go use it just stay out of sight and then you're keeping them up all night and they'll be out there at 2 a.m saying get, get the out. hell out and this goes beyond camping if you're a <clears throat> hunter we've talked <throat> about this on the podcast before the better you treat the property, the more likely the property owner will have you back. I've gone to five properties in this region that I live in asking if I can hunt on their property. I said, you know what? I know you're a nice guy. I've met you before. I know who you are. But I had this one hunter and they destroyed my property. Yeah. And they cut trails all through the place. They trashed the place. I can't even get into my back half of my property because the trails are so mudded up mm -hmm. from their big ATVs and pickup trucks. Yeah. And there's 
beer cans all over the place. There was tarps all over the place. There was trash everywhere. I can't risk it again. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I've been, I've been denied access to hunting grounds because someone else was an asshole. Yeah. Don't be that. Yeah. Take this beyond just camping. Take this into your hunting, your fishing, anything you do on the landscape. Leave no trace makes sense. Mm-hmm. It totally makes sense, whether it's on private property or public land. And this might even be preaching to the choir. Sure. Because I feel like most people that would go as far as listening to learn about these sorts of things are already self-aware mm-hmm. and doing that kind of stuff. But just in case you didn't know any of these stuff, start doing your own research. Yep. Follow these principles totally, and things will be a lot better for you and the future, your kids, mm-hmm. because all the restrictions we have now are because people didn't follow these rules before sort of thing. It's the same as seat belts. It's the same thing as recycling bins. Mm-hmm. It's because people didn't do what they should have done in the first place. Mm-hmm. So now we have to have these rules. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> so anyways with that all said and done that was a joke by the way i was folks. hoping we'd just and cut the podcast right there <laughs> thanks thanks thank you for listening to the Kenyan bushcraft podcast <laughs> we we really appreciate everybody for tuning in tonight this was a really really important one for rye as well as for me mm-hmm. because like we said at the beginning every day is earth day to us we're always trying to do what we can for the ecology today i spent half the day trans or not half the day but half my afternoon transplanting leaks from a trail that people have cut into a forest because I didn't want those leaks getting destroyed. Last year, I collected nine bags of garbage over seven days on my local hiking trail. I went back, and there is almost just as much garbage as there was before. Poop bags hanging from every tree from the dog walkers and stuff. If you're going to go to the extent of actually picking up your dog's poop, don't fling it into the woods when nobody's looking. (laughs) Just be a good person. Either leave it... (laughs) Or take it with you. Don't do this half in, or half out. don't have a dog if you can't. If you can't dog. properly take care yeah. of it and maintain it. Then. When it comes down to dog duty, I kind of go with the Ron Swanson philosophy of never half-ass anything. Do full-ass. Yeah. Just bag it, take it out with you. It's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Don't cry about it. And really, if anything becomes a problem later, you got a weapon. Yeah. So... Anyways, all those kinds of things, we, we take this stuff very, very important to us. I don't want to say take it too seriously because we're laughing while we're saying this. Yeah. But we th- we take this. This is a big part to, of Ryan's heart. This is a big part of my heart is like trying to make sure that the ecology is there. We spent uh, two weeks ago, we spent an entire day planting over 100 trees with our friend Keith. Why? Was it because we want to be able to cut them down in five years to make more crafts? No, it's because me and Ryan and Keith all want trees for the future. Mm -hmm. We want our kids and our grandkids and our grandnieces and nephews to have access to these things. We, if we want to enjoy bushcraft, we need to make sure there's bush left for the bushcraft to happen in. And if you thought camping fees were high already, just imagine what they'll be if you don't keep following this. Yep. And they have to hire twice as many park rangers. Mm -hmm. They have to, to do twice as much work clearing out campsites and going through and doing maintenance. It's going to skyrocket. Yeah. You thought the gas prices have gone high. Oh mm-hmm. boy. So with all that said and done, I want to thank all of you for all uh, for listening. I also want to thank Ryan for helping be the host for this episode. This was a great episode that Ryan did a lot of research on and made sure that he was ready for, whereas I just sat back like I usually do and just shot from the hip. <laughs> so for all the work you did to make sure this episode was flowing and doing really well, had all the information in front of you. Thank you for all that. Appreciate that a lot. Thank you. 
So with that, we're going to thank our patrons in one moment.